are starting a new series today on the book of Hebrews. Yeah, now I just, um, I just want us to remember that moment right there. In a year and a half when we're still in the book of Hebrews, uh, I'm going to play back that track every time I say, hey, we're in the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to go, ugh. Right? Um, but we're starting a new series. Um, be, before we do, I, um, our, our family uh, spent a good portion of our Christmas the way that many of you have spent uh, many of your days over the last couple weeks. Sick. Like... Like pukey sick. Anybody else get pukey sick? It's horrible. I, I can tell you, here, here's the, um, everybody in our household got sick right before Christmas, which if you don't know, when you work at a church is kind of a busy season, right? And kind of inconvenient. And so everyone got pukey sick, except for my son, Luke. I don't know how he missed it. Um, but I can tell you, I think that puking is maybe one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my life. It, 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 there, there are a few things in this world that I hate more than puking, right? Um, I can tell you, when I get, one time uh, my, my daughter asked me, she said, oh, did you throw up last night? And I said, I said, no, no, I didn't throw up. She said, well, how did you not throw up? And I said, I, I, um, I just willed it, right? Like I... Uh, I will just grunt it. When, when I'm sick, I'll sit and hug the toilet and my prayer life gets dynamic, <laughs> right? It's like, please, Lord Jesus, save me from this purgatory, right? I promise if I don't have to throw up, if I can just fall asleep and not throw up, I will never eat a bad thing again in my life. I'll never have another piece of sugar. I'll, I'll never eat raw fish from a convenience store. Nothing. I'll never, uh, tomorrow morning, I'll sign up to go to the, to the gym and I'll take, I promise, right? There are a few things I hate more than puking. There, there's a weird thing though, um, when you're sick, or, or like in any hard time, um, you have this incredible appreciation for the times when you're not sick, right? Like, like I, I, when, I'm, when I'm hugging in the toilet, I have this moment where I'm like, oh, remember the beautiful and glorious days when I just walked around, and I went from here to there like it was nothing, right? It creates such a desire and a yearning and, and such a uh, visceral remembrance of those, those good moments. We're starting the book of Hebrews, and there's not a lot that we know about the author about the book of Hebrews. Uh, we don't know if they were a man or a woman. There have been theories throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, and people have hypothesized we don't know where the person was when they wrote the book. We don't even know um, if they wrote it to a person, to a house church, to a community of churches, to a city, to all of the Jews who began to follow Jesus. We don't know if the person writing the book was in Jerusalem at the center of the Jewish faith or if they were part of the Jewish diaspora somewhere around the Roman Empire. Interestingly enough, I think it's interesting, um, we don't know really anything. We know very few details just from like some autobiographical comments in the text about the writer of Hebrews, but we can be pretty confident about when the book of Hebrews was written, which is kind of, we, get, we have about a five-year window that we can be pretty confident the book of Hebrews was written. We don't know a lot about who wrote it, but we learn quite a bit about the people it was written to. And the people that it was written to were people that were tired, 
It was written to a people uh, that were beat up and exhausted and aching, who, who had known good times, who'd remembered good times, who'd remembered life-giving times, but they were in a moment in a season of great pain and anguish. And the author is concerned that in the midst of the pain and anguish, they might begin to drift away from the faith that they had followed in Jesus. You know, the name that the book bears is the name the Hebrews, to the, to the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And it's kind of the uh, story of the Hebrew people is pain and anguish and hardship. I mean, if you think back from the very beginning of the story, Abraham, God calls Abraham, right? He calls Abraham and he, and he calls him to leave the land he knows and to go to a land he's never seen. And he tells him, he says this great promise. He says, I'm going to make your descendants as many of the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and I'm going to give you this land. And you know what Abraham does? For decades, he walks around the desert without any kids. Eventually, he has a son, but life doesn't seem to get easier for them. In fact, eventually, a couple generations down, uh, we get to the story of Joseph, right? Story of the Hebrew people. Joseph, he, he's um, um, loved most by his father and despised by his brothers. He gets sold into slavery. He gets wrongly accused. He spends uh, time in jail. And eventually, there comes a moment where he gets elevated to the, 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 one of the most important positions in Egypt. But, but don't fast forward through his life. That comes through decades and decades and decades of, of hardship and and pain. And if you're following the story of the Hebrew people, you might think in that moment, you might think, oh, this is the moment, right? God has taken one of his people and he's elevated him to one of the most important positions in the most powerful nation in the known world. And you know how it turns out. Joseph dies and others die and they forget Joseph's name and this tribal wandering people become slaves. Slaves for centuries. Just, just pause and think about that for a moment. One of the largest chunks of Jewish history where they were stable in one place, in one condition, was as slaves. Centuries, generation after generation until no one could remember anything else. Even when God delivers them and shows up and God delivers them, they go rushing out and God parts the Red Sea. He leads them out in the wilderness and then you know what it is for a generation? Because they're rebellion. It's wandering in the wilderness. And it's sand and sand and sand and sand and sand and death and sand and death. And eventually a generation gets to go in and you think in this moment, you think, oh, this is the moment God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you this land. Many of the stars of the sky and sand and seashore. This is the moment. They go to the land and you know how long it takes for them to mess it up? <laughs> About three minutes. Because they're sinful people like us. We have stories like the book of Judges. You know, um, the book of Judges, uh, spoiler alert, this is every story in the book of Judges. God's faithful, he moves, he does amazing things, and the people of God go, God's amazing! And then seven days later, they turn and worship other gods. And then they go, oh God, why have you abandoned us? 
Look how horrible this world is. We're oppressed and you have forgotten us. And God sends someone. He sends like this like little like mini Messiah to come and to rescue them. And they go, God's amazing. And then there's seven more days. And they wander away. And there comes this moment in the Jewish story um, where God, God chooses a, a, a king for them. And maybe for a king or, or two kings, you start to think, oh, oh, maybe this is going to be it, right? Like things are working together. Yeah, David's got his own issues. He's got Bathsheba. He's got that problem there. But, but things are starting to fit together. And this is, you know, we're going to build the temple under Solomon. Like this is starting to look like it's supposed to, but it only takes those two generations. And then you know what happens after Solomon? Their family fractures. And the people that God brought into the promised land as a people, as his people, as one family, fractures and tears apart. And the northern kingdom, man, if you read the story of the northern kingdom, like the northern kingdom is like dead set on a train track to figure out how fast can we just smash the sucker into the wall. How quickly can we destroy the legacy of what God wants to do in us? And those people, 10 of the 12 tribes, get exterminated, get crushed, get obliterated. And even the two that remain begin to wander. And you know what they become? They become a people in exile. And when they return from exile, they become a people oppressed, a people occupied. This is the story of the Jewish people. Over and over and over again, hardship and pain. And and the the, the people that the author of the Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews is writing to today, are a people familiar with heartache and pain. And they live... Again, in another season where they're outsiders, not only are they Jewish people who've experienced constantly being on the outside of accepted society, but now in following Jesus, they've even walked away from that. And so now even in the community of Jewish people where they, the Jewish people in ancient Near Eastern culture were themselves seen as a little bit odd. They were the only, um, uh, the only people that worshiped one God, right? They, they, were, they were the only, uh, they, everybody else was polytheistic and they weren't and they had these own traditions and they had these own rhythms that went back to ancient times and they, everybody saw them as kind of a weird, kind of odd group. Even in that, they're not welcome. And you got people like uh, Paul, Right Now, Paul, Jesus changed Paul's heart, but don't think that Paul was the only one out there who was hunting down Jews who'd become Christians and living scattered all throughout the Roman Empire in pain and heartache and difficulty and anguish. And the writer of Hebrews is concerned that their hearts are beginning to wander. And so he says this, and Hebrews one, this is the first thing that he says to him. He says, uh, Hebrews 1, verse 1, he says this. He jumps right into it. He says this. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He, here's what he wants to point their hearts to. Remember, God's been faithful Remember, like God has shown up, um, this word here, this phrase in the Greek, I, I like the way that, this, that the NASB translates this. Um, it's kind of a hard phrase because it comes from this idea of fractured, 
right? And kind of the image is that uh, um, the writer is saying God spoke in a way that kind of shot all throughout human history, right? There wasn't just one moment. It wasn't just like Abraham. He wasn't just like, I'm going to make you as many stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore, right? And, and, and I'm going to give you this land. It wasn't just that one moment. But what he's saying is, remember, God spoke over and over and over. God's shown up over and over. Abraham, right? Wandering. God shows up and gives him a son, the people of Israel, the, the Hebrew people, are enslaved hundreds of years, and Moses shows up. God shows up with his mighty right hand and delivers them through the plague. They come to the edge of the Red Sea, and it looks like all hope is lost, and God shows up. They end up out in the wilderness, and they're afraid they're going to starve to death, or they're going to run out of water, and God shows up. He's wanting them to see, to remember all of these good and beautiful moments that God showed up over and over and over again. But he's not just calling them to like a little moment of reminiscing. Because um, if you're in a real hardship, right? Like if you're sick, like real sick, or, or if you're in financial distress, or if your marriage is falling apart, like it's almost cruel. It, I think it is probably cruel. To look at you and go, hey, you know what? I know you're having a hard time today. Um, but you remember last summer? You remember when it was awesome last summer? Like, you remember when it was still sunny? And, and like, your family was still intact? And, and you remember when you went on vacation? Like, that's, a, that's, like, a, that's like a kind of torture. And, and, and he's not doing, in fact, he's doing something very different. He's doing something nuanced and something really important, but he wants us to remember all the times God has shown up. And, and, and I want you to see what he's doing in inviting them to remember the ways God showed up in what I think, what throughout this series, I'm going to encourage you, is the key verse, the central text of all the book of Hebrews. Okay, but within a month or two, you will have this verse memorized because we will say it all the time. It is the central guiding text, I think, in the book of Hebrews. It comes in Hebrews 12, verse 1. You've probably heard it before if you've been around church before. It says this, therefore, now you remember this is a good Bible study tool. If you ever see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's therefore, therefore, right? And don't worry, we're going to get to it. It's the previous 11 chapters, okay? It's going to take us about 14 months, but we're going to get there, okay? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, right? All these people who declare of all the great and amazing ways that God has shown up. And he's been mighty, he's been powerful, and he's been faithful. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. This word here, encumbrance, is the word weight. Just like, like weight, like a, a weight that you hold, right? Let us lay aside everything. Maybe another way some translations say, let us lay aside everything that weighs us down. And, and you might ask the question, like, um, what is it that the author of Hebrews, I mean, we're in chapter 12 here, what's he been saying for the last 11 chapters that weighs us down? He, he gives us a list. We're going to go through them over the next couple of months. He, he gives us a list. He says things like the law. The law is a weight that holds us down. The priesthood, it's a weight that holds us down. The sacrificial system is a weight that holds us down. Now, here's the curious thing about it, the peculiar thing. 
All of those are good things. In fact, all of those are God-given things. God spoke miraculously to Moses. He gave him the Ten Commandments. He gave him the law. That is a good thing. God instituted the priesthood so that his people could have a way to interact with him, so that they could have a mediator, so that uniquely of all the people in the world, that God could have an intimacy of a relationship that went two directions. That is a good thing. The sacrificial system was a pathway for the people to atone for their sacrifices. That was a good thing. But see, the great temptation, I think, of our souls today is to make good things, even God-given things, God things. It's interesting to notice. Look at this. Um, in the verse, he, he actually, the first thing he says is to lay down the weights. The second priority in the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews thought is sin, so often in church, we think that following Jesus is primarily about sin management. We think that, that, that the, the most important thing we have to do is to make sure that we don't sin. But for the writer of Hebrews, the first thing he thinks about is all the good things that can, that can weigh us down. That the good things, even God-given things, that can become God things, you see, that's idolatry. For most of us, if we're going to be honest, maybe this isn't your story. And if it's not, like we're, we're glad to hear it. But for most of us, if we're going to be honest, um, the great temptation to your soul is not to go to downtown Salem tonight and do black tar heroin all night on a corner somewhere in Salem. The great temptation of your soul is for the affections of your heart to be drawn to good things of this world. To even make God-given things. You remember there's a, there's a story. Israel, there's a plague going on. There's um, bad stuff going on. And, and, and they raise up this pole with this snake. You remember the story? It's kind of a weird story. And it frees them. And then you know what they begin to do? They begin to worship the snake. Even the good thing that God gave to deliver them became an idol that distracted their hearts away from the God who did deliver them. And the great temptation in our soul is to yearn and wish for, especially in hardship, the safety and comfort of the good things of the past and to begin to, like, reminisce. Some people will say, like, like have rosy-colored glasses. I, I don't really like that phrase because all rosy-colored glasses do is make things look pink. I think a better description of what we do is we get delusional. Right? Like, if we're going to be honest, we begin to paint pictures of the good times in the past, right? And maybe, maybe the, the heartache and the pain you're going through right now has to do with, like, your family falling apart. And, and you, you think back and you think, oh, man, it was just, it was better. It was better before. You remember? You remember? And then you tell people these stories. You're like, you remember? We used to sit together and have dinner as a family in peace and celebration every single night. And we'd open with a prayer, and we'd sing hymns of celebration of God's goodness, and then we'd all go around and we'd speak words of affirmation to one another. No, you didn't. That's a delusion. But when we begin to make good things, even God-given things, into God things, it's, it's idolatry. And this was the great 
risk. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, the book of Hebrews has very little prohibition against what we would call sin. It has a prohibition over and over. It calls the people to something different. It calls them, here, look, this is verse 1. Look at what verse 2 says. It says this, instead, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Oswald Chambers, um, he wrote a classic, My Utmost for His Highest. You, you, maybe you've read it or at least heard about it. And uh, in My Utmost for His Highest, he, he kind of captures this. He, he has this quote, I think it's um, perfectly fitting for um, this passage for Hebrews 12. He says this, the great enemy of the life of faith in God is not sin, but good which is not good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. The great temptation of our souls is to make good things, even God-given things, God things. You see, I can I, I tell you, honestly, for myself, like this is, this is a wrestling I've had over the years. I think, I think the longer you follow Jesus, the greater the temptation this is. Because the more years you have following Jesus, the more times you can point back to things and go, look, God did amazing things back there. Look at what God did there. And your heart can so quickly and so, so unexpectedly begin to shift and go, what if it could just be that way again? And your affections and your desires can be to return to a past that is never coming back. You see, as long as we're living in our memories of what God has done, we will struggle to be faithful in the things that God has called us to. The writer of Hebrews, he tells us, Hebrews 12, he says, he says to, to, to drop the weight, even the good things. You see, a, a big old weight, it can serve as two things. It can serve as two things. It can either be a thing that weighs you down, that makes it harder for you to run the race that God's put in front of you, or it can serve like a block for a sprinter that catapults you forward. See, I, I can think back. Um, I, I remember when I first started, doing, first started working here at the church, uh, a couple friends and I, we, we were working on this college ministry thing, and we were trying to figure out how to connect with more college students, and uh, move-in day was coming. And if you've been around here for a long time, you may remember that move-in day was a dumpster fire for a long time. It was like sheer chaos. Anybody remember being around here? It was just, there were thousands of people moving on to campus all at the same time, and their mommy and daddy came to help them move everything, and, and it was just, there was like one entrance into the college, and if you, if you came to church on that day and it was moving day, it was, it was like a thing every year. It was like, oh, moving day. Because the only way out of here is through campus, right? And it would just be like backed up like the worst traffic Monmouth has ever seen, which is not, not you know, is, is relative. But it would be, it'd be nuts, right? And so someone came up with this idea and they thought, well, why don't we just, everyone's out there unpacking, it's hot, it's, it's, it's uh, a lot of times it's hot. Um, and, and they're busy and they don't have time to get food. So what if we just um, served hot dogs? And we just connect with people and we said, hey, we're here, we're, 
or this college minister, we're glad you're here. Here's some hot dogs. Um, someone else had an idea that <laughs> we should buy a bunch of ramen. So I literally had an S10 pickup truck and I filled the S10 pickup truck and had to use a tarp to strap it all down with top ramen, which is a lot of top ramen. It cost me all of like $37, right? <laughs> but but we, someone came up with this idea. Roger Peterson, I think he was a guy on staff at the time. He said, well, you know what you should do? You should, you should um, do $1,000 for 1,000 dogs. And I thought, oh, 1,000. Um, I was 22 years old at the time. I, I didn't know really about Costco or cash and carry. So I didn't even know where you buy 1,000 hot dogs, right? But like 1,000 hot dogs. And bigger to me was $1,000? I was 22 years old. A thousand, I mean, it could have been $17 billion, right? I'm like, how in the world are we going to get $1,000? And Roger said, well, just stand up there on Sunday and tell people what you want to do and tell them you, you got to raise 1000 bucks. There's a box back there, and it's one Sunday. We're going to raise $1,000. And, and you know what happened? Jared Pressler was here, which he's not. If Jared Pressler was here, you can ask him some other time if you, if you know him. He will swear to you because he and I counted the money together. There was $1,000 and jingle. And I looked at that box and went, <laughs> this is amazing. The moments like that, moments like that can either serve as a weight of me wishing that we could go back to those simpler days, $1,000 for 1,000 dogs. Or they can be a block that pushes us forward in our faith. I remember just not too many years ago. A guy came to me and he said, um, he said, I'm, I'm 12 days sober and I'm living in my fifth wheel because my wife kicked me out. And I said, uh, okay, what, what now? And he said, I don't know. I just know I can't do the same thing. And I said, well, I'm I'm doing a rooted group. You should get signed up for rooted. That's a good starting step. Anybody in here? That's a good starting step. You should get yourself signed up for rooted, right? <clears throat> My wife and I were doing a group. And uh, I tell people, there are some people that still at this church that are in that rooted group. And um, there was, uh, it was definitely, that rooted group was really raw. Um, there, was, there was more cussing in that rooted group than most HBO shows. Um, it was a mess of a group. And um, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And we'd celebrate as days and weeks went by of sobriety and, and he'd just be in there praying and weeping, not wanting to see his family fall apart, repenting for all of his bustedness and brokenness. And, but it wasn't but a week or two into it and he said, man, I, I, don't, I don't think I can keep going with this. And I said, well, what's going on? Like things seem to be going good. And he said, um, well, at night, like I don't have any friends anymore because I don't drink. And I'm living in an camper and so I just go out and I drive around and I know where all the bars are and I, I see my wife coming in out of bars with other guys and I just don't know if I can do this anymore. We, we prayed and we talked and it wasn't too long after Rooted had finished we decided to have a gathering at our house with all of our Rooted people and and, and our couch is still in the same exact spot, so I can see him sitting there. He's sitting on, when I'm like the couch, he's sitting on the right side of the couch. And, um, you know, he had to sit with the arm because he's a, he's a man. And so men have to, I don't know if we're afraid we're going to fall off the couch if we don't have an armrest. But he was sitting right there. And you know who's sitting right next to him? His wife. And he said, uh, we went around at the end and we had prayer requests. We said, you know, hey, 
what we've been praying about. And he said, well, I got to praise. I said, okay, what's, what's that? And he said, um, he said, last night was the first night I slept in my bed. And his wife piped up and she says, and I've been sober for six days. And it was amazing. And that couple, they're still married. Years now of sobriety. And it was amazing. And moments like that are incredible. And we never want to forget those things. But sometimes, sometimes even the good things that God has done in the past can distract our hearts away from the things that God wants to do in you today. Look at what he says again at Hebrews 1. He says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors and the prophets many times in various ways. That's good and amazing and beautiful. But, but look at this, look at this. But, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. One of the great temptations of your soul is to look back on the good things, even the God-given things Maybe it was a small group. Maybe it was a season. Maybe it was a, a, in college, you had this group of friends and you all lived in the dorms together. You all lived in the duplex together. And you're like, that season was amazing. Maybe it was a time in your marriage. And that was amazing. If we just go back to that, everything would be better. Maybe it was a season in your life. Maybe it was, maybe it was a church and you're like, man, when we were at that church, man, our faith was on fire. It was awesome. It was amazing. But God has something he wants to do in you today. He wants to call us to faithfulness today, to trust in him today. And over these next months, we're going to unpack. There are a lot of good things in our life that have become distractions. Maybe even God-given things in your life that have become idols. And it is hard to nearly impossible to be faithful in the things that God is calling you today when your heart and affection are for the things of the past. So I, I, I have no delusions that in this moment in 30 seconds of silence you could come up with the good things that have distracted your heart from what God wants you to follow him in today. But I pray that this week that you'd be honest, that you'd wrestle with what are the things in my life, the good things, even the God-given things that I've come to love more than Jesus himself. Because you know what Paul says? He says, I consider everything rubbish. Um, the, uh, we'll, we'll call it sewage. The Greek term is much more graphic. I consider everything sewage to the surpassing greatness of Jesus, of knowing Jesus. I wonder, I wonder, what is it for you that your heart and soul loves more than Jesus? And I wonder if you would be bold enough in these weeks and months as we work through the book of Hebrew to let those good and even God-given things go so that they might serve as a runner's block to push you forward into the things God wants to do today in you, in our church, 
and in our community. That we might run the race, that we might run it well, pursuing Jesus alone.